My ideal world is a place where we each have the freedom to express ourselves, be who we are. Um, and it's a judgment-free world where we don't pass judgment on others and other people don't pass judgment on us. Just the freedom to exist without judgment. I'm Kimberly Drew, and you're listening to Your Attention Please, a Hulu podcast with iHeartRadio. I am thrilled to sit down today with Ibtihaj Muhammad. I've been following her career since about 2016 when she brought home a bronze medal from Rio. She has become such a beacon of light, an incredible activist, an incredible voice, and a hometown hero because we are both from Jersey. Ibtihaj is a person who could in so many ways just be an athlete, in so many ways just be an activist, in so many ways just be excellent and quiet. But instead, she's taken charge of her own voice. She's taken charge of the future that she wants to see, whether that's through design or her work with Barbie or in her work writing memoir or children's books. Ibtihaj Muhammad is an example for so many of us who see an imperfect world and want to do something about it. Ibtihaj Muhammad made headlines in 2016 when she became the first woman to represent the United States at the Olympics while wearing a hijab. She has reached heights that so few of us will ever know. Seeing images of her on, you know, daytime television or on the podium at the Olympics feel like moonshot goals beyond moonshot goals. But there's also this incredible commitment that she has to connecting with people on the ground. It's such a pleasure to be able to sit down with Ibtihaj, especially in this moment as she's stepping away um, and pivoting in her career as an athlete. Because for so many people who are labeled as the first to do something, and especially for marginalized people who are commended for our firstness in the world, those things can come to define everything about us and the ways in which we're understood in the world. And in this moment, Ibtihaj is pivoting towards a new era of who she wants to be and how she wants to be. There's so many ways that we could point to her journey as author, as athlete, as sister, as daughter, as friend, as marathon runner now. (laughs) There are so many ways um, that Ibtihaj draws together her life. And who are we to define it? So if she could have your attention, please... Our guest today, Ibtihaj Muhammad. So, I'd love to hear about the process of making your phone on your attention, please, which I absolutely loved watching. It was so much drama. Oh, right? Yeah. I, I said stuff in that interview that I've never said before. Like what? Um, I don't think I've ever told the story, even in my memoir. I don't think I ever spoke about my teammates not training with me at the Olympics. I don't think I ever said that out loud because the the kind of the temperature in that space had become such a norm for me mm. that I didn't realize that even like leading up to and at the Olympic Games, it like had reached this climax because it became such a norm. It yeah. was like, yo, their behavior is so wild that I'm used to it. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder in those moments as well, where you're like, this can't be happening. And so I'm just going to find a solution. And it's so hard to tap back in with the reality of it. Cause it had to be painful in that moment. You know, when, when you limit your expectation of people, it's hard to be let down. Mm. So when it came to 
like there are a lot of different layers, um, but like there were limited passes for coaches at the training, the allotted training center that we had. So my coach, I think in that, like, I don't know, say six or seven days of training that we had, my coach only came one day. So I got like one lesson that whole time leading up to, to me actually competing in the Olympics. And it's a politics thing. It's like, well, this coach has this many athletes. So he gets the pass for these days or the guys need it, or like the national coach needs it. So my coach never got the pass. Um, so there's that, you know, there's also that my teammates decided, I don't know if it was a, a group decision that they wouldn't train with me, but they didn't fence with me at all. So I had to make this decision to fence with the guys. And it's like, um, it's like sink or swim. And I learned to lean into that. And I don't know if, um, if I, I didn't have another option, you know, you just kind of deal with it. You roll with the punches and the cards fall where they fall, you know? It's, it's really so compelling to know your story. And also we were talking about this, but I'm from Orange, New Jersey. So Mm -hmm. seeing you, I'm like, ah, you know, you're such a hero to so many. And there's this incredible, and I don't know if it's a choice and I want to talk to you about it because you could just be a fencer. Mm -hmm. You could just be an author, but there's this commitment that you have to others in a way. And I wonder if you could talk about that decision because I know you could just keep your head down and and do one thing, but you're like, I want to bring people in. I want my story to be an example. Or I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. true for you. I do feel like that. And I feel like that way all the time. And I don't know if that stems from the way I was raised or often feeling like I was, you know, the one of one in, in a lot of spaces, whether that be in the classroom or, you know, um, on the athletic field, especially growing up in a neighboring town of yours, Maple, New Jersey, where the population is predominantly white. It's like, how do I navigate these spaces in a way where I open up the door for more people who look like me. Mm. And I I don't know when that shift kind of happened. I think that that may have happened in like my professional athletic career, but I do know that um, my, just my presence on say my high school fencing team, my presence in local fencing competitions allowed for more girls who look like me to see themselves in that space, even whether or not it's a conscious thought, I think it allows us to see ourselves. And it's hard to do when you, when there's no examples for you to kind of, um, kind of, I I think envision yourself in that space. It's really, it can be difficult. And how do we change that narrative, not just for our community, but also for the sport? Why is fencing reserved for people of a certain tax bracket or, you know, people of a specific race? Why is it not an inclusive space? And like, I think my high school team was so different than the sport itself in that from day one, it felt like um, a space of inclusion, a space of diversity and a space of acceptance um, above all things. There's not much that I know about fencing. So I just... I just want to say that I have fenced in my life. I really enjoyed it. Um, but that was when I was eight years old. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the, maybe if there's any takeaways from fencing that you wish could be applied to the real world, because it is such a specific game and there are so many specific rules. And I wonder if there's anything like reciprocally that you wish from fencing you saw more in the world. From fencing itself. Um, 
you know, what's really cool about fencing is that I think from the outside looking in, people see it like as a combat sport. So like, well, is it safe to do? Mm -hmm. And from the inside, we know that, or from within the sport, we know that we have on a mask and we have on all this like gear that protects you from ever really getting injured by the other person's like weapon or sword or whatever. And I've always, from the time I started fencing, um, as a kid who was black, who wore hijab, who was a girl, I felt like when I was in my fencing mask, I had like these superpowers, right? That I was like more powerful in a way because I feel like my mask and my uniform shielded me and protected me from maybe the judgment of others. Um, it shielded me from, I think even, I think just other people's like limited expectations of who I could be, you know? Um, because society's always putting these these labels on us, whether they're conscious or subconscious. And when I look at sport, it almost like reminds me of my faith, right? Where I, I feel like protected all the time, you know? And there's something really cool that you can get from sport. You can't really get from a lot of other things in life. And it's uh, the opportunity to just like try again, right? There's failure in sport. And when I look at, when I look at fencing and look at all those moments that, you know, I tripped or I fell, there was always the opportunity to like get up and like do better and be better. Um, and that opportunity to just like work hard and be able to um, show up for yourself that next competition, that next World Cup or that next day of fencing at the Olympic Games. It's powerful. And especially too, there's so many eyes, there's so many people that you're representing to be able to be compassionate with yourself in those moments of failure is quite powerful because you could, you know, crumble, but also maybe it's not an option. Well, right. And I, I mean, there's so much power in, there's so much power in loving yourself. Mm. Right. And, you know, giving yourself permission to not be perfect. I think that as black athletes, there's this pressure for us to show up like at the top of our game all the time Twice to show good. up. Yeah. You have to be exceptional in order to be accepted and that's something that I felt like I carried with me throughout my career. Um, and how do we, you know, learn to like lend ourselves this, this idea of like forgiveness and that it's okay that, you know, you didn't do all this competition, you know, how hard you work, you know, you know what you're capable of and you show up the next time. And I think that that's where faith comes in. You know, I always say that you have to let, or never let your um, fear like precede your faith. Like faith should always come first and you should, you should believe in yourself and you should know that you can handle whatever, you know, is, is thrown in your path. This is kind of an obtuse question, um, but I've, I've written some memoir-like writing and it's really interesting to confront yourself, to look back at your own archive, to kind of pick through your own personal history. And I wonder in the process of writing your memoir, if there were any moments that when you were re revisiting your own kind of trajectory that surprised you? Having to like relive those experiences, it can be very traumatic. And um, sometimes when I think about fencing itself, I feel like I have PTSD. It's mm. like, I don't want to watch it. I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to talk about it because it was really difficult for me. Um, and I think at the same time, I had to tell the story so that 
other people know what's possible when you um, are resilient, you know, when, when you have faith and you, and you know that, and I don't know where this comes from. I don't, I don't think that it's all faith-based. I really don't. I think that it's something that we can all learn, you know, to, um, to push through. Right. And, and how do you get to that point? I don't know. And sometimes it takes time. I think for me, it took years, right. I was on the national team for eight years and, and made my Olympic team, um, in 2016. And, it's like, how do you get to that point? I don't know, but I can tell you what I did. I can, I can show you how difficult it was for me. Um, and at the same time, I need to hold people accountable for the things that they did so that they know it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And then people who think that, okay, this is how I can treat people. Hopefully, the, I think my memoir serves as a, as a deterrent, right? And allows for the sport to be more inclusive, allows for it to be a space where minorities feel like, okay, this is a space where I can exist and thrive in. And I don't feel like I'm going to be held back by some like, you know, powers at, at B. Yeah. It's real where mm-hmm. you see, of course, you know, especially when you're someone who's like the first, you know, like there's, you know, that capital F first, right. and you are exceptional and you did reach so many goals, but it doesn't come without a lot of hard work mm-hmm. without a lot of discrimination. And you being vocal about that helps pave the path for people who want to come after you. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing is that I can think of, you know, other, not a lot. I can think of one other athlete in particular. And I always wonder like what I had, what made me different from her? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because she, I remember kind of watching her fence and always being in awe of her fencing. Um, she's African-American as well. And she never made a national team. And when I look back on my career and I'm like, man, she's so talented. And what was the difference, right, Mm -hmm. between the two? And we talked a lot about the obstacles that we face as black women, you know, trying to break through on Team USA. And sometimes it's like, um, sometimes it's just like, who's willing to like hang on the longest, you Mm -hmm. know? And I truly believe that our journey is always going to be unique to us and you don't know, you know, what God has in store for you. But that's a question that I, that I always ask myself, like, man, she's so talented. It didn't happen for her, but how can I make sure that this space is like welcoming for other people who look like us? Because I remember how like deep in the trenches we were for a really long time together. Yeah. And it's no fun, you know, like, I think oftentimes people can look from the outside in and say, okay, She's popping, it's happening, it's going on. And, and it's cool in many ways to be the first. Like I said, it's very cool to have, or more than cool, that's not even, doesn't even cover it, you're an Olympian. Um, it's, it's an unprecedented victory in so many ways, but you also don't want to be the only one. You also don't want to walk away and say, why not? When mm-hmm. it's clearly not because of skill. Mm-hmm. Like there's these other pressures that are above mm. your head, around you, yeah. in the locker room, you know, on your way into practice. Like there's just- sometimes it's financial, sometimes yeah. it's nepotism. There's like a lot of different factors, I think, that go into, you know, who gets to be, you know, kind of in that space and who doesn't. And I think that's the most frustrating thing, you know, like you need a lot of uh, layers of support in order to make it. You need a lot of things to happen in order for it to be a space where you just kind of, you rise to the occasion. And um, I think it, to me, it all comes back to, uh, you know, faith and just being resilient and believing that this is something that's meant for you and it's meant for people who look like me. Can you talk a little bit about your support system? 
and what that's looked like over time? You know, it changes. Uh, I think different moments in my career, I feel like I leaned on, um, I would say like different people. I think the constants have always been uh, my family. I think that my family provides this really interesting balance of like um, support and like tough love and that my parents, when I graduated from college, my parents wanted me to utilize this degree, right? This degree from like this top school. They're like, we want you to go on to law school. We want you to get a graduate degree. And I think that it's almost like fulfilling everything that they want for you, but it coming from a very like specific um, plan for us as like African-Americans, like, like you got to be a doctor, you got to be a lawyer. And that's what we view as you being successful, you know? And um, when I decided during this time that I wanted to, to fence um, my, my parents like financially helped me. My mom in particular was just like, okay, like I'll give you money or help you like pay for a hotel here or get new equipment or something like that. But at the same time, it's like, don't waste my money. So you feel it. Mm. And um, even when like, say, I remember, I mean, my first top 16 at a world cup and we're, this is coming from, me being, you know, my first World Cup, I think I was seated 240th or something like that. And then like a year and a half, two years later, I made my first top 16. My mom bought sweet 16 balloons to the airport and like a bouquet of flowers. And I came home and my dad's like, well, who won? You know, so yeah. I think that my family's always kept me really honest and, and humble at the same time. It's like, nobody cares that I won an Olympic medal, you know, mm -hmm. like they're like, okay, what's next? Mm. You know? And it, I, I love it in that I feel the love and support from them all the time. But at the same time, I feel like they're always keeping me on my toes. Like my mom thinks that, I, that, um, if I'm not working right now that I'm going broke. Mm. So <laughs> I like, again, it's, it's, it's a, a tough love environment. And I think that it just keeps me really honest and, and keeps me plugging away at, um, just being successful. Yeah. I love that. My parents are the same. They're like, <laughs> you better, you better, right? <laughs> like, we're here, <laughs> but you better show up. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw you walk in the Nike show mm -hmm. and it was so cool. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, I'm going to interview you soon. Um, I wonder if you could talk about some of your hopes, especially for the future of dress and sports, like, because mm -hmm. also your style is incredible. Uh, um, and there's so much that your own personal flair that you show. And I just wonder if like, what are your hopes for the future of fashion and sport? Mm -hmm. I believe that fashion is, is so inclusive because it, you make it what you want. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, especially as we kind of progress in years and we move forward, we are, finding ourselves in even more inclusive spaces, right? Where you have Nike making like size inclusive mannequins and pro hijabs. And we have modest swimwear and these, all these different things that we're like, Oh yeah, that totally should have been a thing. Mm -hmm. Why wasn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, we'll do it. Um, I think that that to me is kind of where fashion and sport meet where um, you have athletes or creatives 
artists or, you know, celebrities, whatever, kind of finding themselves paired with a company like Nike and have these really cool collabs. And it's my hope one day to have like a modest active line with Nike. I would love for our, um, whether it be workout tops or pants, not everybody wants to work out in a crop top. Right. We're not all here for like this, the spandex short journey, right. you know, <laughs> like <laughs> some of us want loose fitting tops, want a little bit of length, especially for taller women. I'm only five, seven, but I remember as a kid wearing high waters <laughs> for whatever reason they did. Pants just never fit me. I guess I have long legs and I would just love to have longer, looser fitting clothes be a part of like just everyday active wear as opposed to it being, you know, the special order thing or something you have to find on some weird website. Yeah. More options, more readily available. Recently, you've decided to step away from fencing. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that journey, who helped you make that decision? What did it, Mm -hmm. what does it feel like and how does it feel now? Yeah. Well, such a good question. I officially stepped away from fencing like a few months ago, mm-hmm. right? I'd like announced it by accident in an interview, but mm-hmm. um, on the podium at the Olympics, I knew that was it. Yeah, Like I remember thinking like I did it, good riddance. Ooh. Like I don't ever have to see these women again. <laughs> That's the real tea. The tea is hot. But um, I competed for a year after the Olympics. So my last world championships was uh, Leipzig, Germany in 2017. And I could- Throughout that year of competing at, like after the Olympics to world championships in 2017, the interest just wasn't there. Mm. Like, I think the passion just kind of left for, and I I knew that on the podium in Rio, I knew it, Um, but can't really explain it. You can't bottle it. You can't, it's one of those things that you have to, it's a, it's a personal journey. You have to make the decision to retire on your own even though I reached out to a ton of my friends, like I talked to um, Julie Foudy about this for hours. I talked to like Abby Wambach. I talked to Lindsay Vaughn. I talked to a lot of, especially women. I was looking to a lot of my like female athlete friends. Um, and sometimes I realized I was talking to athletes who like never wanted to retire and were like lifers. I'm like, mm. you're the wrong person to talk to. Um, but I don't know. Like when I decided to step away in 2017 to start my memoir, um, I knew I wasn't going back. Mm. It just, I I knew the time was right. And um, I don't think that fencing defines me. I think that fencing has been a vehicle for me uh, to be an agent of change. And I, I love that I've been able to do that through the sport. But, um, yeah, I feel like it was just a really long period of my life. And I, I, through its ups and downs, through like all those obstacles and those amazing moments, like the peaks and valleys, I feel very grateful. Mm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like at peace with my decision, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Makes total sense. It's yeah. your life, babe. Right. <laughs> and I know it's, you're saying it's just been a few months, mm-hmm. um, but I wonder how you define yourself now. How do I define myself? Yeah. My parents would say unemployed, but uh, <laughs> it's so, it's Black crazy. Black parents for the win. <laughs> I know, right? It's so crazy. I traveled 250,000 miles on one airline carrier last year. So I am so busy. I like sometimes can't even think straight. Mm. And it's like a good busy. You know, you want to be busy, especially as a retired athlete. You don't want down moments, but 
Um, I thought when I stopped competing that I would travel less and I would mm. have downtime. And now I'm like, what is downtime? Mm. Um, I don't know. I, how do I define myself now? I define myself as like an entrepreneur, as a New York Times bestseller, <laughs> right? As a Barbie. I don't know. Um, I have a lot of different projects I'm working on. I, I just signed a deal for two more children's books, which I'm really excited about. Um, working on hopefully a television series. There's a lot of like cool things in the works. I would love for my company to be in like a big brand store, hopefully soon. So there's a lot of, I think, moving parts to like my, me as a brand. And I'm just along for the ride. I feel like it's a lot of fun being able to use your platform for good. And that's always how I think I feel. I think of like, what's next? Like, what can I do to be the change that I want to see? As a public figure, I think that there's a lot more expectations. And in this moment where people are looking to you as this beacon of hope, um, I wonder if that pressure has shifted. Like, is, is that intuition, like, is that intuition I'm feeling like a true one for you? Or do you feel like you're staying this course where you're just like, I'm going to keep doing my thing. I'm going to keep promoting the messages that I want to put out. Um, do you, do you feel like there's been a pressure shift or key change in terms of how people have been viewing you or expectations around you? People always put like unnecessary pressure on people who have like these perceived platforms, right? right? You see a large number on Instagram and it's like, I need, I need you to withhold the standard, right? Of expectation all the time. And because I've come through, you know, through the trenches of sport as a woman of color who wore, who wears hijab, I've abandoned people's expectations of me long ago. Mm. I don't really care what people think. I'm out here doing my own thing. I, these are my platforms. I'm going to push the things that are important to me, the things that I feel like I need to call attention to. And I'm going to present myself in a way that, um, yes, is unique to me, but this is how I feel comfortable presenting myself. I don't allow for any like negative comments on my page ever. Mm. I don't have these crazy numbers where I feel like it's hard to control. I'm really good at blocking and deleting people because I want good energy in my spaces. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of having to, you know, I don't know, live to these standards that are set. I don't, I don't respond well to, I think those type of pressures. So I just, I don't even try. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think that, um, it's really important for us to, I think, be leaders, um, in our own lives. And for a lot of people, they, they expect, they, there's this expectation that they have to be led by others. And it's like, well, I think that that driver's seat is open for whoever wants to be in it. Like you can, um, you can be that for yourself. You don't always have to look to other people to do it for you. And I think that there's a lot of pressure put on, um, I think there's a lot of pressure that does exist. I think it's really how you respond to it. And I don't know. I just do my own thing. <laughs> I love to hear it. Yeah. I just in, do my in own my thing. my brain, I'm like, as an athlete, it's like, you can win. But then when you're thinking about being a public figure or being an author or being a designer, the, the metrics change. Yeah. You know, um, and that's, that, I yeah. think that's the framing where I'm just like how, and, it, and it's great just to hear you say that where it's just like, I just don't tolerate BS. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. But I also feel like I have a really strong moral compass and mm -hmm. I try to like constantly lead a life of good. And 
wanting to show up for underserved or underrepresented communities and wanting to use my platform to be an agent of change. And like on the, on the same note, I feel really frustrated by athletes who don't show up for Mm -hmm. other people when they do have large platforms and they can be, when they can actually provide tangible change by using their voice. I find that really frustrating. Um, so I think that it's double, like it's, it's two-sided, right? No, I don't really care what people think, but I also feel like I'm a person who, who tries to show up and I try to be present and I try to, to listen and, and, um, to be an advocate like that. I think in my post athletic career, I think of myself as an activist, even Mm -hmm. if it's like in some small, like tiny way, I feel like I always just want to be an advocate for change. And part of the reason why I co-founded Athletes for Impact is to help other athletes, I think, realize their impact and um, be willing to show up because we owe it, I think, to one another to lend our voices So this is the part of the episode where we have a few questions from our Hulu subscribers who have watched your segment on Your Attention Please, now streaming on Hulu, and uh, come up with their own questions. Our first question is from Omar here in California. Inclusivity is a big buzzword right now, but it's also such an important practice. What are some misconceptions about inclusivity and what does it mean to be inclusive? I don't know if I think of inclusivity as a buzzword because to me it holds so much weight and value because I know what it feels like to not be included, right? So when I think of inclusivity and its misuse, like to invite people of color to a corporate event, but there be no people of color in the room aside from like the speaker, that's problematic. To me, that's a misuse of inclusivity. Um, using it when it's convenient. And I would love to show up to some of these events and like the workspace be in the board, the the boardroom be diverse and it include, you know, 50% women and it to include people of color and for us to be a part of the conversation um, and not have it come from some outside space. I think like in an ideal world, minorities wouldn't be responsible for acknowledging, you know, a lack of diversity. So our next question (laughs) is from Rochelle Rochelle in Oklahoma. What advice would you give to someone who has many interests that they're pursuing, but doesn't know which career path to take? That, I think that that's a tough question because I'm a person who wears so many hats. I feel like I have so many different projects going on and I don't know if you need to just focus on one thing necessarily, but I do believe in really committing to the things that are important to you. And if you want your business to be successful, you have to be willing to put in a hundred percent. Um, if I want, you know, a project to go well, I'd know that I need to like really lean into it and give a hundred percent. And I think that, um, when I look at my career and my journey and, figuring out, I guess, in life that I would become this professional athlete. I really, you know, poured 
my heart, my soul, my everything into becoming a better athlete. And I wasn't able to balance anything else aside from, you know, this life of professional sport in order to be successful. So maybe it's a matter of finding out what you love and really giving your all into that one thing in order to, to be successful at it. So it's two minutes, your moment, anything that you're thinking of, anything that's coming up, it's lawless two minutes, whatever you want to say. What's on my mind? Mm -hmm. Oh no, I don't know. Well, I would be an awful business owner if I did not use this opportunity to talk about, um, I think the love of my life right now, my clothing company, Luella, my sisters and I started like five years ago now, it's crazy how time flies, but we started this clothing company because we felt like there was no one doing modest clothing fashionably and affordably here in the U.S. So with a dream and an investment from a family member, we started this company, Luella, named after my grandma, and uh, we manufacture everything in Los Angeles and in New York um, with the idea that it's fashionable and affordable. So... There are not very many companies who manufacture everything in the States. It's not cheap to do, but uh, it's a way that we are giving back to our communities. We want to um, always be conscious in the things that we make. So we work with female manufacturers who employ women. So we feel like we're giving to our community in New York and our community here in LA. The other thing that I want to talk about, totally unrelated. So this is a PSA. This is a driving PSA. I'm a New Jersey driver, so you can take this with a grain of salt. However, if you are that person who drives slow in the left lane, I need you to get out the way, right? Left lane is a passing lane. If you are driving like below the speed limit, you should not be in the left lane. People in California do not know that. They have no idea. Everybody drives slow in every single lane, so there's no passing lane. So I believe that's why Los Angeles has traffic. New York and New Jersey, we use the left lane as a passing lane. We know that traffic moves smoothly. California, Los Angeles, on the other hand, have not grasped that yet. So if you are a calm, collected driver, you don't have anywhere to go, you're driving a smooth 55, get out the left lane. And that's Ipti Hadjus PSA for the day. I have to say, I entered into today's dialogue deeply intimidated because I am a little starstruck, (laughs) y'all. We've had such a star-studded collection of guests and more to come, so stay tuned. But Ibtihaj, to me, like I've I've probably said a hundred times in this episode, is truly a superhero. And so being able to sit down with her, I was kind of like, I don't know if I'll be able to think in real time, will I be able to breathe? Will I be able to make eye contact? And Ibtihaj is so generous and so full of multitudes and was so willing in our dialogue to flow. One of the things I really enjoyed during today's dialogue was talking to Ibtihaj about fashion, not from a political standpoint, but more from a space of abundance. Um, it's very clear that through Luella and you know in her partnerships that Ibtihaj isn't 
um, isn't afraid to talk about how few options there are out there for women who are looking for modest wear and that it doesn't always have to be this huge fight. Um, it is really about um, a space of, you know, just wanting pining for abundance and more um, examples. Um, I think oftentimes, especially when people are coming from marginalized communities, there's an assumption that it's always, you know, coming from this very political standpoint or this very like rah-rah activist standpoint. But in truth, people just want more options. And it's cool that her and her sisters came together and put together this company with such a clear mission um, to make those options possible for others. I have to say, there was a moment where I had a little Yelp <laughs> Just a little moment, tinge of excitement. Um, when Ibtihaj was talking about her advocacy work and defining herself as an activist, because I think the label activist has been over-attributed, under-attributed, over-prescribed, and can be something that people feel really resistant to. Um, but in my own career and in my own observations, I think activism and the work of an activist is the work of someone who believes in something. And not only believes in it, uh, but works to champion that belief. You can just tell that Ibtihaj is in a moment of incredible possibility just from her smile. I don't know about y'all, but there's been so many moments in my personal life and trajectory where I've been at crossroads and really unsure. Um, and it, it's really incredible to both see and hear Ibtihaj in this moment um, with a tranquility and clarity um, that I know in, is infectious to me and I hope is infectious to anyone who gets to listen to this episode. It really is about the ways in which you commit yourself to your ideas and not necessarily about limiting those ideas. Um, it's not just about like, being super linear or limited, be abundant, be full, be ambitious. Um, don't limit yourself because you think you have to be one thing or that that one thing that you do, that you excel at, defines you in totality. Um, there's so much more to life than labels. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. And until then, I will leave you with this. Don't be afraid to find what you love. Share it with the world and scream from the mountaintop. Your attention, please.